Well, turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 20 as we continue, of course, our study of the Gospel of Luke. Luke presents Jesus as the perfect man. He is the Savior, the substitute, and the sacrifice for the sins of the world. We're seeing the final week of Jesus Christ's life right before he goes to the cross. He's going to die and rise again. He's going to pay for sins and conquer death. He's in the temple area. He is teaching, and as he's teaching, he's being confronted by the religious leaders. He has come to Jerusalem, and we saw that he offered himself for the last time as the king of Israel. He came into Jerusalem riding on the donkey fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, and the religious leaders, of course, continue to reject him. In fact, as a whole, the nation of Israel has rejected him as being led by these religious leaders. He is showing his authority as he has cleansed the temple, he is teaching the word of God, and he is proclaiming what, what we saw earlier, the good news message of salvation. For the last several weeks, we have been seeing these confrontations. The religious leaders are coming to Jesus, hoping to trick him, hoping to trap him in some way, hoping they can get his statement so that they can turn him over to the Roman authorities. That's their plan. In this little section we've been studying in the Gospel of Luke, we've seen five confrontations. We're going to see the last one this morning. And this is where Jesus actually asked the religious leaders a question concerning the son of David. And what does he ask? Why does he ask it? And what does it mean? That's really sort of the hard part here. We're going to see Jesus as he publicly denounces these religious leaders. and, And we'll see just a little bit about giving as we get into chapter 21. There's a lot that we can know and apply from this passage so the goal is to, of course, know the Scripture and make application in our lives. Well, as we begin, you know, there are a number of names in the Scripture that really are names for our Savior, Jesus Christ. In fact, there are personal names, there are titles, and they all go together to tell us who He is and what He has done. The most common that you're going to find in the New Testament are three names that all go together. Most of the time, people will say, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's, that's kind of the total package when people want to call Him something. You think about it, first of all, the name Lord literally means deity. That's what it is. It's a Greek word, kios, which means the sovereign. One, it's the idea of the fact that he is the Lord, that he is God. The second name, Jesus, of course, is the, was the word for Savior. Uh, it's Yesu, but it's the word that comes from Joshua, Yeshua in the Old Testament. In fact, the Old Testament name Joshua and the New Testament name Jesus, they're the same name. The name means Savior. That's why in Matthew one twenty one, when the angel came to, to uh, Gabriel came to Joseph, he said, you shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. The third name that is there is the word Christ. It's Christos in the, in the the Hebrew, it's Mashiach. We get the word Messiah from it. It literally means the anointed one of God. This is the one that God, in a sense, picked out and anointed for service. And so when you think about it, when you say the Lord Jesus Christ, you're talking about God who is the Savior, who is the one set apart by God. There are other names and other titles. I just picked out two more I want you to think about. One is the Son of Man and the Son of David. That's two other names. First of all, when you see the Son of Man, that's the next one I think on the slide, the Son of Man literally comes from the book of Daniel. Jesus called himself the Son of Man. And if you go back to the book of Daniel, book of Daniel, Son of Man is the title of God and King. He's, that's the title. So when Jesus said, the Son of Man came, came to seek and save those who were lost, he's talking about the fact that he's the God and the King. The second title is a famous one, the Son of David. It's really referring to the King of Israel, that he's both God and King. It goes back to King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17. We'll talk more about that in a minute because that's what, G, that's what Jesus is going to talk about in the passage this morning. In fact, that's kind of the thing there. He's going to raise the question to the religious leaders, and it deals with the title, the son of David. And he asks, whose son is the Christ? In other words, who is the father of the Messiah? That's how he asks it. And most of them could answer it. In fact, you know the answer as well. You may go, what what is he talking about? We'll see it when we get to the passage. And as he talks to them, he gives them some questions. And one of the questions is that they're afraid to answer is, how can David call 
him Lord. How can he call his son Lord? That's the question, and we'll see it as we go through. What does Jesus mean by this? Why does he even say it? How could they answer? Why didn't they answer? And we'll see it as we look at the passage. So there's a lot there. Well, let's begin. Jesus is spending his final week in the temple area teaching the word of God and proclaiming the good news message of, of Jesus Christ and salvation. That's what he's doing. Now, let me remind you of this, that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem the last time. He's cleansed the temple. He's he, What he'll normally do is Jerusalem is on Mount Zion, then there's the Kidron Valley, and then there's a hill called the Mount of Olives. And then on top of the Mount of Olives, there's two or three little cities. One was called Bethage. The other one was called Bethany. And then there's a third one. But no, Some people say there was a third one there, but nobody knows exactly what the name was. Jesus would often be in the temple during the day. He would leave at night, go back up to Bethany, spend the night most likely with Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. They lived in Bethany. During the day, he would come down, go into the temple area, and teach. So this is what's happening. He's teaching the Bible. This is his final week. And, he's, and people are coming to him. The crowds are there. If you remember, it's almost Passover. All Jewish males, three times a year, Jewish men had to come to Jerusalem. One of the main times they had to come was Passover. So it's about time. Jesus is actually going to die on Passover just a couple of days from now. He's going to die on the 14th day of the first month of Nisan. That's Passover. So he's the Passover lamb. That's why he's there. So all the people are there. There's large crowds. He's teaching in the temple. And if you remember that he's been confronted by these Jewish leaders. They come up to him and they ask him these questions trying to trick him. And every time they look foolish because they'll say something to him and then he'll ask them something and they'll, they'll look around and they'll not know what to do. They hate him. They want him dead. They are not. They, they are so afraid that he's going to take over, that somehow he's going to take position. They're going to lose their authority. Uh, they want him dead. They do not believe he's the Messiah. And as a whole, the nation of Israel is not believing in Jesus as Messiah and Savior. He has made these religious leaders look foolish. This morning, we're going to see the last of the five confrontations. There are five things. We saw, first of all, the first one, they came and questioned Jesus' authority to teach and to heal. He had just cleaned the, cleansed the temple and done all these things and healed people, and they came in there and asked him, where did he get this authority? And then we saw the second confrontation in which he gave the parable of the vineyard, which shows their rejection of him. They didn't like it. The third one we saw, third and fourth one we saw last time, where they came up and said, should we pay taxes to Caesar? He said, give me a coin. He says, whose image is on the coin? And they said, Caesar's. He said, you give to Caesar the things that have his image on them, and you give to God the things that has his image on them. That's us. We're the made in the image of God. Then they asked him the question. The Sadducees came and asked him this question about resurrection. And you know, the Sadducees didn't believe in resurrection. They asked a ridiculous story. They made up a, a story that they thought could trick Jesus, and yet he turned it right back around on them. And now this morning, we're going to see the final confrontation of this little section, and that's where Jesus actually asked them questions about the son of David. And we'll talk about that and how it all fits in just a minute. And as we look at this section, several other things are going to happen. He's going to denounce the religious leaders publicly. He didn't do that very often. Sometimes he would, but in this passage he really does. And then we see a little part about giving. Let me break down the passage for you so you can just see how it fits together. First of all, we're going to see the question. Really, it could be questions concerning the son of David because we're going to see that he asked two questions in our passage. There's actually three questions and I'll tell you about it in just a minute. We we see his first question, quoting Psalm 110, and the second question. Then after that, he denounces the religious leaders. That's verses 45 through 47. And then as we get to the third part, and we'll go quickly through this, but this is giving in the temple. It all ties back to the last part of the chapter where we see the rich giving, we see the widow giving, and we see what Jesus teaches. So there's a lot in the passage this morning. We'll go pretty quickly through it. 
Uh, some of it will have to slow down a little bit, especially when we look at Psalm 110 that, uh, that uh, Jesus teaches there, and we'll see that. Let's see the fifth confrontation. The religious leaders have been asking all these questions about authority and taxes and resurrection. Now, G- Jesus is going to raise questions to them. In our passage, he raises two questions. But in reality, he raises three questions, and I'll show you how we know that in just a minute. Before we get to the questions, let me give you some background. In the Old Testament, when David was the king, now remember David, David was the, was the man that when he was a young boy, he used the sling, uh, the, the uh, sling and hit Goliath and killed him, and he was a great man. He's called a man after God's own heart. He, be, he became the king of Israel, and he was a great ruler. One day, Nathan, a prophet, came to David and said, God has a promise for you, David. One day, one of your sons will sit on the throne of Israel forever. Now, David knew that when the Nathan, Nathan the prophet told him that, that it couldn't be like a regular son because he had a son named Solomon who was going to be king after him. But Solomon couldn't sit on the throne forever. And he knew that the promise had to be that this was the Messiah, this was the Savior, this was the Son of God who was going to come to the earth and come through David, be in the lineage of David, and be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. That took place, that was in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17. From that point on, everyone knew that a descendant of David, sometimes called the Son of David, would be the Messiah, the Savior, and the King. That's what they're looking for. So we're going to see in our passage this morning that Jesus raises the question about the Son of David. Do you remember the time that Jesus was going through Jericho and there was the blind man there? And we said that the blind man had believed in Jesus as Savior. And as Jesus was walking by, he said, who's coming by? And somebody said, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And the blind man began to shout out, Son of David, have mercy on me. He was calling David the Messiah because the name Son of David is referring to the promise to King David that his son would be the Messiah and the King. And of course, David, uh, Jesus stopped right then, brought the guy over to him, and healed him. So the, the, to call somebody son of David is to say you believe that that person is the Messiah. So when people called Jesus that, they were recognizing that. Now, Jesus is going to raise some questions about the son of David. So let's look at this. The questions about the son of David, we'll see this in Luke chapter 20, beginning at verse 41. Then he said to them, now remember, they've been questioning him, and they've asked him all kinds of questions, and every time he makes them look foolish. So right here, all these people are standing around. Just get this now. Large crowds, they come up to Jesus when he's teaching, and they'll say, okay, what about this? And he'll answer them, and then they'll go, boy, that was stupid. Who, who, whose idea was to go up there? And so uh, he's standing there, and so he, he stops and looks at these guys, and he asks them some questions. All the crowd is watching. His disciples are listening to all of this as well. Notice what it says. Then he said, to them how is it that they say the Christ is David's son and then he goes on and quotes Psalm 110 now before we see that you have to understand this Jesus actually asked three questions you don't want to turn there because of time but in Matthew chapter 22 we see the first question Jesus asked this is not the first question in Luke the first question was this he said what do they say about the Christ whose son is he That's the first question he asked them. Whose son is the Christ? And, of course, they know the answer is supposed to be David. He asked that question to them. And if you read the Gospel of Matthew, they looked for a second and then they said, David. They got it right. Now, they're afraid to answer Jesus anything because everything he ever asked them, they get it wrong. He's asked them an easy question. He asked them a question and said, by the way, Who is the father? That's how you say it. Who is the father of the Messiah and the king? 
the answer is going to be David because the son of David is the Messiah. So he asked them a question and they got the answer right. Then he asked this question, verse 41. Then he said to them, how is it that they, and he's talking about them because they just said it, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? Now, he asked them another easy question. He's saying, how do you know that the Christ is David's son? The answer would be obvious. Because that's what the Bible says. That's what 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17 says. That's what the promise to David says. They're afraid to answer because they never get it right. Right? So far, they're going to get it right. So he raises the question. Then, how is it that they say the Christ is David's son? And, and he is. Now, what I want you to get, and, and we're going to see it in just a second. He wants them to understand that they realize that the son of David, David's greater son, is the Messiah. Now watch what he does. He says, for David himself, he's going to quote David, he's going to quote Psalm 110. He says, for David himself says in the book of Psalms, and then he quotes Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, in just a second, we're going to look at the Psalm, this part right here, and I'm going to tell you what it's about. But what it's about has nothing to do with what Jesus asked them. He just quotes the psalm where it says. Now, you have to be careful because sometimes when you read it, you, you may not follow it as well because it says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. In Psalm 110, David is the one speaking. And by the way, I, I don't know, Psalm 110 was accepted by all as a messianic psalm. Everybody knew that Psalm 110 was talking about the Messiah. Okay. Now, look what it says, and let me help show as you can follow it. When he says, the Lord said to my Lord, the first Lord, the first part there in the, in the psalm, the Lord is referring to God the Father. The Lord, the God the Father, said to my Lord, now this is David writing, and he calls my Lord, that's the Son. So David says, the Lord, God the Father, says to my Lord, God the Son, that'd be Jesus. And then he says, go ahead and sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. Now before we explain this, I want you to understand. Jesus' only point that he wants them to think about is this. David, that's David in the psalm, called his son my Lord. He calls the Messiah there my Lord. That's all he wants them to think about for a second. Now, let me give you what the psalm is about, just so you'll know it. It says, for David says in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 110, the Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, God the Son, Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. What's he talking about? You understand that this is the two comings of the Messiah, the first coming of Jesus Christ. He came to the earth, died on the cross, paid for sin, rise again. You remember Jesus came, died on the cross, paid for sin, rose, walked on the earth, and then ascended back to the Father. When he came back to the Father, where did he go? He is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And then he's going to come back again. Psalm 110 is talking about the Messiah coming back to sit at the right hand of the Father until it's time for him to rule. So the whole Psalm 110 is saying, Jesus, come sit by my right hand until it's time for you to rule till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Psalm 110 is just talking about how Jesus came. Of course, it's written you know, way, way in the past, long before Jesus did it. But Jesus comes, dies, pays for sin, goes back, sits at the right hand of the Father until it's time for him to come rule. Now, beside that, 
besides quoting that, the point that Jesus wants them to know is, he says, the Lord said to my Lord, David calls the Messiah his Lord. Okay? Now, watch verse 44. This is where he gets a little tricky. Therefore, David calls him Lord. That's true. And then here's the question. And how is he his son? Now, you know the answer to that. You may be just like the, fair, the, uh, the religious leaders that you don't want to answer because you don't want to get the wrong answer. But you know the answer to it. He says, David calls him Lord. How can he be David's son? See, if he's Lord, he's God. If he's the son, he's got to be a what? A person. See, the reason David can call him Lord and Son is because the Messiah is the God-man. In fact, I think, uh, what is the answer? He is Lord because he's God, Messiah and Savior. But look at the next part. He is David's Son because he became a person born into this world. See, David can say, he's my Lord and he's my Son because at a point in time in history... Jesus Christ left the glories of heaven. He's the Lord. He's God. And he came to this earth and became a human being to become David's greater son. And so he's both Lord and son because he's both God and man. We call that the hypostatic union. It's a theological term that means the union of the deity and the humanity of Jesus Christ. He is the God-man. There's nobody else like him. He left the glories of heaven to become a human being. He's the one who was able to die on the cross to pay for sin. He is the one who is who died in our place. And so when he says, how can David call him his son if he calls him his Lord? They don't answer. You know why they don't answer? Because if they were to answer and say, he calls him his son because he's a person. He calls him Lord because he's God. He's God-man. That's exactly what Jesus has been teaching. Jesus has taught them that he's left the glories of heaven and become a human being as the Son of God. That's why in John 3.16, Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That's him to be the Messiah and the Savior. So Jesus has been teaching that he's the God-man, that he is God who is the Son of David. If they were to say that he, David can call him Son because he's God and man, then Jesus would look at him and say, that's who I am. That, and they don't want to say that. And they're afraid to say it because it will make Jesus look right. And they're afraid to say it. So Jesus called him his Lord. Basically, Jesus called him Lord because he's God. Excuse me. David called him Lord because he's God. David called him Son because he's a man. He's the God man. Now, that's a hard passage. And he shocked them. And they didn't know what to say. In fact, if you notice, they don't even answer. They can't answer the question. Because if they were to say, well, that's because he's the God-man, then Jesus would say, that's who I am. Because remember, Jesus has said many times, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father before Abraham was, I am. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Before, you know, he is, he's God, and he's been telling people that. He's the God-man. So they can't answer. And if they did, they'd be admitting that Jesus was the Messiah and the Savior, and they don't want to admit that. So what does Jesus do? Once again, they're standing there looking like idiots. And they're going, what are we going to do now? Well, right in front of the people, I want you to notice what Jesus does. 
He begins to talk to his disciples, but the whole crowd is right there. And the passage lets us know that the crowd can hear everything Jesus is saying. Jesus is going to turn to his disciples, and he's going to talk about these religious leaders, but everybody else can hear it. Notice what the next verse says. And this is the part we're going to see, that Jesus is going to denounce the religious leaders. Look at the next verse. And while all the people were listening, he said to his disciples. So he's going to warn the disciples, but all the people can hear what what he's got to say and look what he says beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows houses and for appearance sake offer long prayers these will receive greater condemnation now jesus is going to do something he doesn't do very often and he's going to publicly denounce the religious leaders in front of them, in front of everybody. He turns to his disciples and says, Beware of these scribes. Now, the scribes, of course, were sort of the lawyers. They were the ones that copied the Bible. They knew the Bible. They were respected by the people. But it, we could say any religious leader because the religious leaders thought they were better than others. Now, I want you to understand that what he says about these people all goes back to the whole issue of pride. And it's a thing that we have to grasp. We are not on this earth to bring attention and glory to ourselves. We are on this earth as those who know Jesus Christ to bring glory to our Savior. And Jesus is going to say, beware of these scribes because here's what they like to do. Here's the first thing. They like to walk in flowing robes. Now you say, what's the deal? Well, everybody, you know, they wore sheets and togas. and you You know what they wore in those days. Well, some of the wealthier religious leaders had these long flowing robes. And they came down and when they walked, they just flowed around and they were rich and they were important and, and they looked famous and so as they walked through people would stand back and go here they come and they wanted everybody to think that they were holy people and they were better than others so first it says they love to walk around in these long robes and they love the next thing was these respectful greetings now what that meant was is that when they would walk through the marketplaces in fact it says respectful greetings in the marketplaces whenever they would go out in public they wanted people to recognize who they were they liked to be called rabbi You know what the word rabbi means? We all think it says, well, it means teacher. It literally means my master. But it became became the use for the teacher. So if you had a teacher, you'd say rabbi. But it literally means my master. And so when they would walk through places, they would want people to go, hello, rabbi, hello, rabbi, because it made them feel important. It it was a pride thing. They wanted to look special. You know how it is when you go someplace, you go in a public place, and as you're walking, somebody goes, hey, and you go, oh, hey, and and you go, yeah, they know me. They know me, right? And you feel you want people to think they know you. It's a pride thing. And you say, yes, people know me. Well, they wanted to be known. They wanted to walk into the crowds and people shout out their names. And so they wanted these respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Look at the third thing. Chief seats. It says chief seats in the synagogues. Now, let me tell you something. In the synagogues. The synagogues were divided into two sections. When you came in, there's a front part, and then there's all these chairs going back, all these seats going back. There was a barrier wall. The women sat on the other side of the barrier wall. They did not sit out with the men. So the Jewish women were on this side. Then there was a barrier wall, and then there were all these seats facing the front. At the front was a thing that they often called the Ark. And that wasn't the Ark of the Covenant, but they called it the Ark because it had a copy of the Torah. The first five books of the Bible were placed in this thing. And they would open it up and they would read from it. Now, all the people are looking up toward this thing. There were seats at the front that were for special people. 
sort of like this. If you came in today and you all sat there, and then there were special seats up here where we're looking out at you. and every, See, because these people could see everybody, but everybody could see them. They wanted those special seats in the synagogue so that when people came to worship, they would be up front in their long robes so that everybody could see them. It's pride. They wanted to be special. The fourth thing is they wanted the places of honor at the banquets. You remember that whenever they would eat at the host table, they usually ate in a circle, and at the host table there was the host, and the two seats to the right and the left of the host were the seats of honor. They wanted, when they were being invited to something, since they were the religious leaders and they were the holy people, they wanted the best seats. He says, beware of these people. They have these long robes. They want the respectful greeting. They, they want the chief seats. They, ha- they want the places of honor at banquets. But look at verse 47. Look at the next one. It says, they, they devour widows' houses. What in the world does that mean? Well, I want you to understand, in that day and time, sometimes when a widow, she lost her husband, she didn't have the family, whatever possessions she had, oftentimes the widows didn't know exactly what to do. So they would go to the religious leaders and they would say, I don't know what to do, I have this money, I have these possessions, I I need somebody to help me. And these religious leaders would say they were going to help them, but what they'd actually do is take her money. They'd take her stuff. they devour. That word literally means to eat. In the guise of saying, we're, out, we're here to help the widows, they'd actually take their monies. And they would take their stuff from them. And so trying to look like they were holy, they were actually using the widow's possessions for their own. They did that. Jesus knew about it. Other people knew about it. And so he says, they devour widows' houses. And then last but not least, it says, and for appearance sake, notice everything's for appearance sake, offer long prayers. Long prayers. Now, do you like long prayers? Let me tell you this. Public prayers are not to be long. Private prayers, you can get off by yourself. You can get, as Jesus said, get in your closet, get off by yourself, and you can pray all you want to. Public prayers should not be long prayers. I'm going to tell you this. When I was at Dallas Seminary, this was not at Dallas Seminary, but I went to a special meeting while I was in seminary. And I'm telling you this. This is the truth. I'm not exaggerating. I exaggerate sometimes, but I'm not exaggerating on this. At the start of the meeting, a guy got up to pray, and we were standing. And, and, and I just happened to look down as he started to pray, and I looked down, and I, I looked at my watch. And I want you to know, he prayed for 23 minutes. That's a long prayer. That's a long public prayer. In fact, that's way too long. We did not come to that meeting to hear this man pray about all kind of things. Jesus says, you know what they do? They get in a public way and offer these long prayers. Why would they do that? So everybody think that they're holy, that they pray to God in front of all the people, and it just goes on and on, and people would say, oh, they're so holy. Look how they talk to God. Jesus said, if you want to talk to God, and you want to talk to God for a long time, you get off by yourself and talk to Him. You don't have to make a public spectacle. See, the whole point was they did this for pride. They wanted to be seen. And you know what He says? He says, you beware of these people. Beware of anybody that draws attention to themselves. Beware of the people who say, look at me and look what I've done. From the business realm to any kind of realm, especially in this religious realm, when people say, look what I did. Because see, the whole thing 
is that when you serve God and when you live for Him, it's not that you get glory. It's not even that you get recognition. It's that God gets the glory. Everything that we do, we do it for the glory of God. And it's not for us, to, people, to say, look what you did. You say, no, 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 no. It's the grace of God all the way. He's the one that gave me the spiritual gifts. He's the one that gave me the opportunity. It's His power. It's the Holy Spirit. It's not me. And whenever you and I serve Jesus Christ, we should never get the glory because it's Him using us. He gets the glory. We're just His instrument. And that's why Jesus is getting on to these people because they are looking like they should get all the honor and God is the one who should always get the honor, not us. And if by the grace of God, He uses you to do a great thing and He will. Just say, it's the grace of God and it's really God. I just happened to be His instrument and He just chose to use me. It's always the grace of God. And so look what he says about these people. The very end of verse 47, these will receive greater condemnation. Wow. Our goal is to be used for the glory of God, not that we get honor and glory in any way, shape, or form. It is God who gets all the glory, and we just thank him for the opportunities. Now, he's going to use this, and that's why I wanted you to see the first four verses of 21. He uses this in the same way, because just as these people wanted to be seen, we're going to see in chapter 21 that they go into the temple, and the rich are giving their money. And I'll talk about how they did it, and everybody could see it, and they'd look at that, and then this little widow comes up, and she gives a little bitty money. And Jesus says she gave more than they did Because see it's not what it looks like It's not who sees and who gives the most It's the heart of the matter And we'll see it as we go through it As we get a look at chapter 21 It talks about him He says he looked up and he saw the rich Putting their gifts into the treasury So the third thing that we want to look at Very quickly this morning Is the giving in the temple now, as we think about this section, uh, sometimes the whole issue of giving is overlooked. You know at Countryside, we don't deal about it unless the passage deals about it. But I want to do this, and I want to do it very quickly. I just want to remind you, since we're not going to go into a lot of detail, I want to remind you of some key principles, just the dealing with giving from the Scripture. Okay, here's the first one, that all that we have comes from God. Everything that you have comes from God. Just think about it. Every possession, your time, possessions, houses, money, life, everything is from God. It's, it's His grace, and everything that we have is that way. He supplies everything. He's the creator, provider. Our time, possessions, money, gifts, talents, all from God. Second, because that's true, we're to use all that we have for the glory of God. Everything that we have, we're to use for His glory. In fact, we are stewards. He gives us this, and He says, use this for, for His glory. And so everything that we have, it's not really ours. You say, my car, my this, my that. Listen, it's not. It's God's that He says, I'm entrusting this to you. Use it for my glory. The third thing is the truth. We're not to trust in things, but to put our trust in God. So you can't trust in things because they're temporary. I mean, you can have this thing you like, and it breaks. You can have all the money in the stock market, you think you're okay, and what could happen? You cannot trust in things. You can only trust in God, because things are temporary. And the fourth thing is this, we are to give as God has blessed us. I'm going to give you just some principles in a second. Go back just a second. But in 2 Corinthians 9, 7, it says, Let a person give as they purpose in their heart, not grudgingly nor necessity. God loves a cheerful giver. Now, in the principles of giving, first of all, we give out of first fruits, which means you give as God gives to you. Now, what a lot of people do is they get their money, they get their paycheck, they get whatever they get, and they do this, 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 and when it's all over, they say, I don't know if I have any to give away or not. Oh, I don't. I don't this month. We had to use it all. Giving of the first fruits means when you get whatever you get, you give away first. That's a principle from the Scripture. Give of the first fruits. You've got to trust God. That's what it boils down to. Don't wait to the end because you'll never have anything because you spend everything. 
So take what God has given you and give. The second thing is you're not under a law system. You're not under any kind of system. In fact, he says, let a man give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly in necessity. You're not under necessity. God loves a cheerful giver. The Greek word for cheerful is hilarious. That's the Greek word, hilarious. We get hilarious from it. God loves a cheerful giver. We're to give as, as we purpose in our heart. And then the third thing. As we give as an act of love, worship, and trust, we give because we love God and others. We give as an act of worship. When we gave the offering a while ago, I hope that what you gave, if you gave, was that you had said to God, God, you have given me everything. I'm going to give a portion as an act of worship to you, trusting you as you have given to me. And so it's an act of love and worship and trust. That means you're going to have to trust God when you give away because you're going to have less than you would have had. And you're going to have to trust him and he's going to take care of you. And he always does. Now, let me just show you this. That's just some real quick principles. But let me just look at the passage. I want you to see what happens here. Verse 21, he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. Now, in the temple, if you went to the temple at Jerusalem, there was a place called the Court of Women, which meant this is the far, as, as far as the women could go. Everybody could come to the Court of Women, but, but women couldn't go any further than this. Then there was a place called the Court of the Gentiles, which Gentile men could go to. Then there was a place called the Court of Israel, which Israeli men could go to. And then there was a called the Court of the Priest, which only the priest could go to. In the Court of the Women, where everybody could go, there were 13 chests. 13 chests that were funny shaped where people gave their offerings. They had a big bottom. They were like this. They had a big base bottom. And then they would go up. And as they got taller, then it got narrow, narrow, narrow. And then it fanned out like this. It looked like a trumpet. They were also called trumpets. And they were fixed that way so that when people put their money down in there, they couldn't reach their hand down in and get stuff out of it. That's why they were shaped that way. And there were 13 of them in the temple. And each one of them was designated for certain things. He said... Jesus looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. A lot of times people made it clear what they gave because the rich put in a lot of money. Sometimes they even had people to blow trumpets so everybody would look over there and they would then put their money in. They did that. So everybody would say, oh, they give so much. Notice what happened. He saw a poor widow putting in two small copper coins. Now, we've always called those the widow's mites. Those little coins, they were worth about one one-hundredth of a denarius. A denarius was a day's wage. If you worked all day, they gave you denarius. This was about one-hundredth of that. It would be like a couple of pennies. And she comes and she puts in, let's just say, two pennies. Somebody else put in a couple of thousand over here, a couple of thousand, you know. She comes in, nobody knows, and she puts in two pennies. What does Jesus say? He said, truly I say to you, and every time you see the word truly, it comes from the Greek word amen, which comes from the Hebrew word amen, which means believe it or truth. It means it's very important. Truly I say to you, this widow put in more than all of them. What? She did. Why? Because they all, they all, out of their surplus, put in their offering. But she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. She gave it all. Now, Jesus is not saying you don't give out of your surplus, because most everybody does. You, you have what God's given you, and you take a portion of that out of your surplus, and you give away. What he's trying to show here is those religious leaders always wanted to look good, even in their giving. And he's saying it's not what it looks like on the outside, because the one you didn't even see gave the most of all. And that was the little woman throwing the little coins in there. She gave the most of all. So he says it's not outwardly. And it's not outward. Be careful when somebody's saying, I want everybody to know what I'm giving. That's between you 
in the Lord. And you give as God purposes in your heart. And in that day and time, the religious leaders wanted everybody to know what they gave so they would look rich and important. Let me tell you something about giving. You have to trust God when you give. He is the provider and protector. You give as an act of love, worship, and trust. But let me tell you the truth. You will never miss what you give away. You'll never miss it. So trust Him when you give. May we continue to grow and trust God as we give. Next time we're going to see Jesus talks about the temple. Now, that's pretty powerful. He's going to talk about the temple, and then He's going to talk about the end times. And for the next two to three weeks, now I'm going to be gone for on vacation, but when I come back the next two to three weeks after that, we're going to be seeing the, the tribulation time period. Jesus is going to teach what it's like in the future. They ask Him. They ask Him what it's going to be like at the end of the age, and He's going to talk about it. So if you're ever interested about the tribulation and the Antichrist and all that's going to come in a couple of weeks because Jesus is going to teach that in in Luke chapter 21. If you want to get more details, just go to Matthew chapter 24 and 25. That's the same place in the scripture in the sense of the same teaching where Jesus gives those details. What have we seen this morning? Jesus questioned religious leaders about the son of David. They couldn't answer it. They, they knew if they did, it would point to Jesus. He denounces their pride of the religious leaders. He said, you look good on the outside, but on the inside, that's really where it should be. And he showed the giving of this widow in contrast to the rich. And he says, it's really not the amount, it's the heart. And it's not to be seen. Well, what do we get? Let me give you some applications real quickly. First one is understand that Jesus Christ is the son of David. That's who he is. He is, A, he is the promised son of King David. As the promise was in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 17, that David would have a son who would come as the king. Jesus is that one. He is both, B, he is both God and man. He is God because he is David's Lord. He is man because he is David's son. That's the key, his God and man. And that's why he's able to come to this earth and die on the cross and pay for our sin. That's who he is. Number two, live for the glory of God. We should not live for ourselves. That's pride. We should not. That's what you see. That's why he says, beware of these people. They want everybody to think they're special. Our goal in life is not to point to ourselves. Our goal in life is to point to Jesus Christ. It is to make give him the honor and the glory and make him the key one. Be Let us offer our lives to God to bring Him glory. That's the plan. Not for us, but for Him. And the third thing is let's worship God in our giving. Now, giving is a real personal thing, but it's a great truth. A, understand that giving is an act of worship. It's where you love God and you trust God. It is an act of worship. And I hope and pray that as you think about giving, that whatever God has given you, in fact, B, look at this, let's give based on the biblical principles. Let's give out of first fruits. Start trusting God that whenever you get something, whenever God gives you money, your paycheck, whatever it is, that you say, I'm going to take a portion of this right off the top, and I'm going to give to God. I'm going to trust Him because it's the first fruits. We give it cheerfully. Notice that? Cheerfully. And then we give regularly. Because the Bible talks about it on the first day of the week. In fact, that's when they gave. In 1 Corinthians 16, uh, verses 1 and 2, Paul talked about when you come together on the first day of the week, that's when you take up your collection. That's what he talked about. And then it's trusting God. So let's worship God in our giving. Let's give based on biblical principles. Winston Churchill said this. He said, We make a living by what we get. We make Make a life by what we give. As we know Jesus Christ is Savior, in fact, as we know that He indeed is the Son of David, our Messiah and Savior, we want to live for Him, seeking to bring glory to God and not to self, realizing that we want to be faithful to worship Him even in our giving. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, what a passage. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for these great truths. We understand that Jesus indeed is the Son of David. He is the promised one. He is both God and man. That's how he is David's son, and that's how he is David's Lord. Thank you that Jesus is the God-man who died for us and paid for sin and gives eternal life. Lord, may we live for the glory of God, not for ourselves, but may he get all the honor and the glory. And Lord, in the whole aspect of worship, especially in giving, may we be faithful to give according to the biblical truths, and may we trust you, Lord, as we show as an act of worship and love and trust. Thank you, Lord, for these truths. May we make application in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.